I'm Francis Callier. And I'm Angela V. Shelton. And we're Frangela. You know what you need in your life? Hmm. The Final Word Podcast. Yes, you do. That's right. It is the final word on all things political and pop cultural. Where we make real news real funny. Where we inspire you so you can hashtag resist. Subscribe and get a new episode of The Final Word Podcast each week. It's the news we think you need to hear. That's right. We think you need to hear it. Okay. Yeah, it's what we say so. That's right. And because all we do is give, every Thursday you can listen to our hysterical podcast, Idiot of the Week. We round up the stupid because you know what? Somebody has to. Okay. All we do is give. Hi, this is John Cryer, and I am hosting a new seven-part true crime podcast called Lawyers, Guns, and Money that'll challenge everything you think you know about U.S. covert operations and presidential misconduct. From Jack Bryan, the director of American PSYOP, comes the incredible true story of John Mattis, a newly sworn-in Miami public defender in the 1980s who has found himself completely in over his head. I step off the plane, and there is a van with a couple guys with Uzis. And one of them in broken English said, welcome to Bogota, John. Mattis's first felony defendant has been arrested for having a machine gun and tells Mattis a dangerous secret. He was shipping arms into Central America on behalf of the CIA. As a first-time lawyer, I want to act like I know what I'm doing. But with the help of a Colombian drug smuggler... How much money the CIA raised by hitting up drug dealers? A lot of money, millions of dollars. An Alabama mercenary... They were prepared to die to the last man. I saw this in them. I saw the fire in their eyes. And they made me their war chief. And a newly elected senator, John Kerry. We are looking at allegations of drug running, gun smuggling, conspiracy to commit murder and murder itself. He'll fight to free his client. The judge said, show me in a courtroom how we were at war expose an illegal war being run by the White House. I mean, I wanted him involved, but I didn't want to be on record as doing it. And somehow stay alive in the process. I just escaped a kidnapping by the CIA in Costa Rica. This is Lawyers, Guns, and Money. So you have a man in Armani suit standing in the bow of a boat with a rocket launcher and says, if I lose sight of you, I will launch. You will be vaporized. Available everywhere starting October 29th. Or get it ad-free and early starting October 22nd at lawyersgunsandmoney.supercast.com. There you'll find bonus episodes along with exclusive content. Subscribe now. M-S-W Media. Hello and welcome to the Daily Beans for Friday, June 2nd, 2023. Today, a grand jury has handed down federal indictments to the Albuquerque GOP candidate that shot at opponents' houses. The neo-Nazi terrorist who plotted to sabotage the power grid has been found in possession of classified documents. In a blow to unions, the Supreme Court rules that a company can seek damages from a strike. Two more Oath Keepers were sentenced today for their participation in the attack on the Capitol. 
and Trump Bucks retailers' websites have disappeared. I'm your host, Allison Gill. Hey, everybody. Happy Friday. There's no happy hour today. That's going to be next week. Actually, next week, no. Uh, I have to postpone that, too. But we might have a meet and greet for patrons in D.C. next week. I will keep you posted. Dana's out. She'll be back Tuesday. And a little bit later in the show, Kate Shaw, Steve Vladek, and Senator Whitehouse will join Harry Lippman on the Talking Feds pod to discuss the court's current record low standing for the Supreme Court and how it came about. And we're going to have a clip for you uh, from that episode in the B Block, and then we'll go to the good news. We have a lot to get to today. Looks like the Senate is just about to vote on the what I call the Dark Brandon budget, uh, but what other folks call the debt ceiling bill. I think it'll pass. I don't think we'll have a problem there. We just need to see if it'll get the 100 votes necessary to pass unanimous consent or if they'll have to take a full vote. But uh, let's hit the hot notes. Hot notes. All right. First up from the Associated Press, a failed political candidate has been indicted on federal charges, including election interference, by the way, in a connection with a series of drive-by shootings at the homes of state and local lawmakers in Albuquerque. That's according to a grand jury indictment that was unsealed Wednesday. The indictment filed in the U.S. District Court in Albuquerque takes aim at the former Republican candidate Solomon Pena. Remember this guy? Uh, And also two alleged accomplices with additional conspiracy and weapons related charges and connections with the shooting that happened well, multiple shootings in December of 2022 and January of 2023 at the homes of four Democratic officials, including the current state House speaker. The attacks came amid a surge of threats and acts of intimidation against election workers and public officials across the country after the former guy and his allies spread the big lie and false claims about the outcome of the 2020 election. U.S. Attorney Alexander Ubales highlighted that the shootings targeted the homes of two county commissioners shortly after the certification of the 2022 election. Pena targeted several of these public officials because, in their official capacity, they certified the election, which he lost. That's what Ubalas said in a news conference. Quote, in America, voters pick their leaders and would-be leaders don't get to pick which voters they heed, which rules apply to them or which laws to follow, unquote. No one was injured in the shootings, but in one case, bullets passed through the bedroom of a state senator's 10-year-old daughter. The new indictment outlines smartphone communications, including text messages from Pena, in the days following the November 8th, 2022 election. And these texts pinpoint the locations of officials' homes. They allege election rigging and confide to a political ally about plans to press the attack. Text messages in the indictment show the 40-year-old candidate bristling with outrage as a county commission certified the results of the midterm election in his own overwhelming defeat as candidate for a seat in the state house. Federal authorities say Pena hired others to conduct the shootings and carried out at least one himself. Now, hours before the first shooting on December 4th in 2022, Pena texted a Republican political ally who also lost a bid for state rep to say, we have to act. I'm continuing my study of election rigging. The enemy will eventually break, unquote. Now, amid the shootings, Pena later texted one of several unnamed conspirators in the indictment to say it is our duty as statesmen and patriots to stop the oligarchs from taking over the country. Elizabeth Hauntz, a defense attorney for Pena, said her client maintains his innocence. Pena has been held without bail since his January arrest on charges in state district court related to the shootings. Those charges will be dismissed in deference to the federal indictments as Pena is transferred into federal custody. 
Police have described Pena as the instigator of a politically motivated conspiracy leading to shootings at the homes of two county commissioners and two state legislators. Charges against the three defendants include the use of an automatic weapon. The shootings began December 4th when eight rounds were fired at the home of the county commissioner, Adrian Barboa. Days later, state rep Javier Martinez's home was targeted, and on December 11th, more than a dozen rounds were fired at the home of County Commissioner Debbie O'Malley. Martinez became the Democratic State House Speaker in January. The final related shooting targeting Senator Linda Lopez's home unfolded in the midnight hour of January 3rd. Police said more than a dozen shots were fired, including three that Lopez said passed through the bedroom of her sleeping daughter. Now, Maggie Toulouse-Oliver, New Mexico Secretary of State, said she was pleased to see the federal government pursuing this case with the seriousness it deserves. Following the shootings, New Mexico state lawmakers this year enacted legislation that provides felony sanctions for intimidation of election regulators and allows some public officials and political candidates to keep their home addresses off of government websites. Recent assaults on politicians and their households include the hammer-wielding attack on the husband of then-House Speaker Nancy Pelosi in October of 2022 at the couple's San Francisco home, And in July of 2022, a man clutching a a pointed weapon assaulted Republican candidate for New York Governor Lee Zeldin, a congressman at the time, on stage at a speaking event. And a neo-Nazi Marine Corps veteran who authorities arrested after he schemed to gun down protesters and sabotage power grids was in possession of classified information. That's according to a new report from Raw Story. The outlet first reported that the 28-year-old Jordan Duncan had the secret documents from the Department of Defense on his hard drive when it was seized during his October 2020 arrest in Boise, Idaho, along with documents detailing how to craft homemade explosives. Duncan, who allegedly plotted with a group of other neo-Nazis to take down a power grid somewhere in the Northwest, was stationed at Camp Lejeune in North Carolina. No new indictments have been lodged against Duncan in relation to the classified documents, whose exact contents remain unknown. So I'll keep you posted. And from Kyle Cheney at Politico, Robert Menuda, one of the more than a dozen Oath Keepers who surged with the mob in the Capitol of January 6th, lashed out at the group's founder, Stuart Rhodes, on Thursday as he prepared to face sentencing for his conviction of seditious conspiracy. Menuda said Rhodes was part of a deranged leadership that turned the Oath Keepers into a political rah-rah Trump disaster that duped many of the group's members into criminal activity. Quote, I was misled and naive, Menuda said. And it was shortly before U.S. District Court Judge Amit Mehta sentenced him to four and a half years in prison. Mehta credited Menuda's comments and expressions of remorse for his actions, but said his efforts to downplay his actions and involvement were belied by his clear violent intentions in the weeks preceding January 6th. Quote, steeping yourself and cloaking yourself in this tradition of the founders and violent uprising and believing that the Second Amendment allows individual citizens to gather up arms to battle their government, the law doesn't permit that. Menuda is the third January 6th defendant sentenced for seditious conspiracy, the gravest charge leveled by prosecutors against about a dozen defendants. Now, Menuda's lawyer, Shipley, also piled on to Stuart Rhodes, calling him a parasite who used the Oath Keepers organization And another Oath Keeper, sentenced later Thursday afternoon, Ed Vallejo, similarly accused Rhodes of leading him down a treacherous path toward January 6th. Quote, I wish I never associated myself with Stuart Rhodes, he said. And that was shortly before Meta sentenced him to 36 months in prison, including a portion on home confinement. These are really, really far below the guidelines. They were asking for like the six to 10 years, you know, between the two of them. 
Menuda, in his remarks, said his fury at the government was driven in part by the COVID-era destruction of his business and threats he received when he opened his New Bar New York tattoo shop in violation of local restrictions. He said that anger, fused with claims by Trump and others that the election had been stolen, led him to make incendiary comments on social media. He apologized for both his words and conduct on January 6th. Menuda also said his entry into the Capitol was simply about aiding police, who he claimed that they asked for his assistance. Menuda also said his entry into the Capitol was simply about aiding police, who he claimed asked for his assistance, a proposition Meta said was belied by Menuda's words and actions the entire day. You weren't there to help them. You may have convinced yourself of that, but there's not a shred of evidence that would be consistent with that intent. The judge added that the jury found Menuda culpable of acting in concert with other Oath Keepers whose conduct was even graver, and the law makes him culpable for the actions of his co-conspirators. Quote, operating with others gives people greater courage. It gives them the ability to do more harm, and it gives them the ability to have far greater impact than they can do on their own, Meta said. But Meta also sharply diverged from prosecutors who initially sought a 17-year sentence and tried to cast Minuta in a similar light as Rhodes. Assistant U.S. Attorney Troy Edwards described him as dangerous, a dangerous individual to others in his republic, with a warped sense of patriotism that calls for violence against the government when he disagrees with it. This is his belief system. That's what Edwards said during sentencing proceedings. He lived up to his twisted creed to take the fight to the government that he considered corrupt and tyrannical. Prosecutors cast Vallejo similarly as instrumental as part of the Oath Keeper's seditious conspiracy, describing him as the leader of the Oath Keeper's stash of weapons kept at the Comfort Inn across the Potomac. The Justice Department has indicated that Vallejo was prepared to drive the firearms into Washington to ratchet up the attack on Congress. Vallejo, though, in a tearful address to Judge Mehta, said he had renounced his views and forsworn politics. His attorney, Matthew Peed, characterized Vallejo as a genuine believer that the election had been stolen, duped by Trump and Stuart Rhodes, and convinced that his efforts to prevent the transfer of power were patriotic. Mehta addressed the claim as he issued his sentence. Quote, people like Mr. Vallejo are victims in their own right, the judge said. That, of course, doesn't mean they aren't responsible for their own actions. Meta emphasized that the relatively short sentence he gave Vallejo, they were looking for, I think, for six and a half to nine years for him, despite the seriousness of his crimes, was a reflection of Vallejo's age, health, and appearance of genuine remorse for his actions. He said that prior to January 6th, Vallejo had lived a life that was worthy of great respect, including by overcoming alcoholism and remaining sober for 40 years while mentoring others struggling with addiction. Nevertheless, Meta emphasized that Vallejo's preparation to potentially turn January 6th into an even bloodier and deadlier day posed a threat to democracy. So just to get that straight, they wanted 17 years for Menuda, and he only got 54 months. And they wanted six to nine years or so for Vallejo, and he got three, plus some of it on home confinement. So severe downward departures. However, the terror enhancement was accepted for both of them. Okay. Uh, Now from NBC News. The companies that appear to have swindled supporters of the former guy out of tens of thousands of dollars by peddling bogus Trump bucks no longer have active websites just days after their businesses were exposed by NBC News. The websites were the Colorado-based Patriots Dynasty, Patriots Future, and USA Patriots companies were selling official Trump 2024 gold cards to Trump rebate banking system membership cards 
purportedly issued by Donald Trump himself, are no longer active. Similar websites that also promise real patriots will get rich if they buy these products still remain active, but they've been disabled by the online retailer ClickBank, which connects the purveyors of the products to potential buyers. Quote, this site is no longer in service or has been disabled due to the terms of service violations. That was the message that popped up when NBC tried to make a purchase. Quote, any consumer purchasing these items through ClickBank received a pre-purchase disclosure that they are for commemorative value only and are not legal tender. Still, ClickBank is concerned to hear that the products were being deceptive and deceptively marketed elsewhere, so we chose to discontinue sales, even with our disclaimer. No evidence suggests the alleged scammers are connected to Trump himself or his campaign. Trump spokesman Steve Chung has not responded to emails seeking comment about the Trump bucks selling using Trump's likeness aimed directly at some of his most ardent supporters. Representatives for the companies that sell Trump bucks and TRB membership cards could not be reached for comment, and there are no criminal charges or active investigations against these companies. But word that three of the retailers' websites had been shuttered was welcome news to a Florida woman who said earlier that her 77-year-old mother-in-law was fooled into buying tens of thousands of dollars worth of Trump's bucks. It seems at least they know they can't get away with this, said the woman who lives north of Tampa and asked not to be identified for fear of internet harassment. The Florida woman described her mother-in-law as an ardent Trump supporter who'd always been conservative and prone to believe in conspiracy theories. But of late, the woman said her mother-in-law has been insisting something big was about to come down related to the Trump bucks she had purchased. Maybe this is it, she said. A 75-year-old Alabama grandma who said earlier that she became outraged when she discovered that the $1,500 in Trump bucks she had purchased were worthless. She said she too was happy the Colorado-based companies had been shut down. Awesome, said the woman, who also asked to not be identified by name. Now if they could be arrested and put behind bars. NBC News identified more than a dozen victims and reviewed dozens of social media posts and online complaints and hundreds of misleading ads for products being sold to Trump supporters. In addition to promising that their investments in the products would help propel Trump back to the White House, the ads also falsely suggested that Trump will make the real patriots who support him rich. For example, the ads say a $10,000 diamond Trump buck bill purchased for $100 can be cashed in for $10,000 at major banks like Bank of America and retailers like Walmart, Costco, and Home Depot. Bank of America, Home Depot, Walmart, Costco denied any involvement. So, hmm, Trump bucks. And from uh, Hurley at NBC News, in a loss for organized labor, the Supreme Court Thursday ruled in favor of a concrete company in Washington state seeking to revive a lawsuit against the International Brotherhood of Teamsters, alleging that their strike damaged their product. The eight to one decision was written by Amy Coney Barrett, and it means the company, Glacier Northwest Inc., can pursue a lawsuit against the union in state court over an August 2017 strike in which drivers walked off the job, leaving wet concrete in their trucks. The company claims that the union is liable for what it says was intentional damage to its product. Organized labor advocates have raised concerns that a ruling in favor of the company could stifle strike actions by opening up unions to damages claims for a broad range of potential losses that employers can face as a result of such activities. Liberal Justice Ketanji Brown-Jackson dissented, saying the ruling risks erosion of the right to strike. Jackson's two liberal colleagues, Kagan and Sotomayor, joined the court's conservative justices in the majority. 
Jackson pointed to the fact that the National Labor Relations Board issued a complaint after the state court ruling charging the company with unfair labor practices and saying that the driver's actions were arguably protected. By ruling in favor of the company, the court, quote, inserts itself into this conflict, proceeding to opine on the propriety of the union's strike activity, despite not being the best place to weigh the facts, she wrote. Jackson goes on to say, this case is exhibit A as to why the board, National Labor Relations Board, and not the courts, should ordinarily take the first crack at resolving contentious, fact-bound labor disputes of this nature. All right, speaking of the Supreme Court, I have a clip for you from the latest Talking Feds pod with Harry Littman, and then we'll get to the good news right after that. Stick around. We'll be right back. After these messages, we'll be right back. Hello, Beans listeners. This is Harry Littman, host of Talking Feds. Enjoy this excerpt from our most recent episode, and if you like it, Check out the link in the description to subscribe to Talking Feds. I'd like to focus today more on the court as an institution in American life, where it stands, what ails it, what, if anything, can be done. So let's start with just its public standing, which is abysmal. 18% of Americans said they have a great deal of confidence. 36 reported they had hardly any, and that's in 2022 before the latest round of ethical scandals. Where is the court in public standing relative to other crises points in history? How bad is this juncture? And let me throw in also where the academy and the legal profession stands in terms of the court standing. Anyone? Well, I mean, to answer the easiest of the questions, the numbers that you just quoted are the lowest in most polls since people started polling on these questions. How much confidence do you have in the Supreme Court? I think the court is a hard institution to formulate the right kind of polling questions around. And so I'm never sure exactly what people are answering when they talk about how much trust or confidence or support they have for the Supreme Court. But Whatever one thinks of the way the questions are formulated, the numbers today are historically low. Although, interestingly, post-Obs and in the first six months post-Obs, they really continued to crater. There was a little bit of a kind of restoration and some polling a few months ago. But regardless, we're still at historically low levels in terms of sort of polling. And... You know, in terms of academia, I teach constitutional law. Steve, I think, sometimes teaches constitutional law. I think for those of us who do, I think it becomes increasingly difficult to deny just how central politics is in judicial decision-making today. And maybe I'll just take a beat to sort of say a little bit what I mean by that. I mean, I think that sometimes I think we are disserved by the many ways in which we can deploy the term political or politics and the many nuances. I mean, in some ways, the court has always been political, and there's this mythology of the court as standing outside of politics. But you think about the Supreme Court in earlier eras, the court during the FDR period, right? He puts most of the justices on the Supreme Court. Most of them come from a life of politics. They're senators, they're attorneys general, they're SEC commissioners. Many of them are actively involved with, in ways that would seem very dubious today, advising executive branch officials, including the president, on the lawfulness of potential government action. They are intimately connected to the world of politics in a way that, again, feels very unfamiliar today. And yet, none of them, when they take the bench, understand themselves to be, I don't think, in a kind of uniform or categorical way, 
tasked with carrying out an agenda that aligns with that of a political party. Some of them were beholden to presidents in particular, to FDR. So it's not to say that that never occurred. But I do think that a couple of things really distinguish the kind of political that the court is today from the kind of political it's been in other eras. One, there just is this perfect alignment of the political platforms of the appointing presidents and the votes in high salience cases of all of the justices on the Supreme Court. And that was not the case as recently as, you know, five years ago when Justice Anthony Kennedy was still on the court. I think that's sort of one difference. And I think another difference, not just the alignment, but the kind of understanding when justices take the bench of the degree of kind of affiliation that they understand themselves to possess with maybe not a political party in their own formulation, but an ideological worldview that really does align in non-accidental ways with the worldviews and the kind of platforms of the major political parties. And I'm talking, I think, most about the three Trump appointees, but I'm sure similar criticisms could be leveled against the Democratic appointees as well, although I think it'd be hard to make quite such a convincing case, I think, on the other side. So I think that those are distinctions. So when we say the court is political today, we're not saying it's political and it's never been political before, but I do think it's political in a way that is different. And I think that pairing that with just how kind of maximalist a vision this court seems to have with its role in deciding incredibly important questions. I think that that is a kind of unique combination of factors we just haven't seen previously in American history. That's all really, really excellent. Let me try to imagine how court defenders or justices might push back, you know. So let's say Justice Alito, who wrote the most recent thunderbolt from the court, Let's say he's here. I think he'd offer up something like the following. You know, look, the people don't really distinguish between politics and law. Sure, they sometimes dislike the results, as with Dobbs, but that's just inherent in judicial review, which is among the court's, you know, highest callings. We just can't worry about that. We're just have to go ahead and do law. And by the way, the dissent's arguments, as he said this morning, can't be taken seriously. What's wrong with that line of reasoning? Well, you know, we're hearing, Harry, arguments very like that in defense of the indefensible Thomas Gift reporting scandal, that this is basically just Democrats who aren't getting what they want out of the courts any longer, and it's just a bunch of sour grapes whining, which is a fine distraction from the actual facts, which is a set of facts that is unprecedented in the court's history and appalling to anybody who's taking an honest look at it. And I just think that the public actually is a pretty true sense of what is going on. I think that, frankly, the Supreme Court press, for sure the Supreme Court bar, and the Supreme Court adjacent academia are real lagging indicators compared to the public because they're all constrained by not wanting to annoy a judge. The worst of all being the Supreme Court bar because they don't dare say anything unkind about the institution where they make their living. But shortly behind that are the press, which has been pretty hapless with a few very prominent exceptions like Linda Greenhouse and Dahlia Lithwick and a few others. But by and large, it's it's hapless coverage and not attentive to any of these concerns. And then the academics are very cautious because, I don't know, maybe they want to get their students into clerkships or whatever. But I think that the public has got a very strong sense that things are wrong at the court. 
And I think there's an abundance of evidence to back it up. And they don't have to make the case to the finest little jot and tittle of the argument. It's enough for them to just have a strong sense that something is wrong at the court. And they're right. Something is very wrong at the court. Just to piggyback on Senator Whitehouse, I mean, I think part of what's wrong, you know, we spend a lot of time talking about the justices because obviously they're central players in the story. I think part of what's wrong is that the court is just out there on an island and that for better or for worse, and I think increasingly for worse, what separates the court of this generation from its predecessors is not that it has a conservative majority. That's been true at other points in the court's history. It's not that some of its decisions seem out of kilter with the, you know, mass of public opinion. That's been true at other points in American history. It's that the court both is and acts as if it is completely unbeholden to Congress in a way that we've never seen before. So when Chief Justice Roberts responds to the invitation to testify before the Senate Judiciary Committee by saying merely accepting a voluntary invitation would raise separation of powers concerns and undermine judicial independence, you know, I want to send him a history book and say, well, wait a second. The history of the Supreme Court's relationship with Congress is a history of push and pull, where Congress at various points made entire terms go away, where Congress made cases go away, where Congress as late as 1964 gives the justices much less of a pay raise than every other federal judge because it was mad at some of the civil rights decisions. And, you know, against that backdrop, the fact that today there's this mindset that anything Congress does, whether it's in the ethical sphere or the docket sphere or the budgetary sphere, somehow crosses a constitutional line, completely conflates judicial independence with judicial unaccountability. Um, those are not necessarily mutually exclusive. They have not historically been mutually exclusive. And yet we're in a moment where at least some of the justices are acting like you can't have one without the other. Let me put what Steve said to a finer point, which is that the questions that we were asking Chief Justice Roberts to respond to were questions about the implementation of a law passed by Congress by an agency established by Congress. So the Judicial Conference was established by Congress. The Ethics in Government Law was crafted by Congress, and how the Judicial Conference was enforcing the ethics and government law was the question. You tell me how an honest Supreme Court Chief Justice comes up with a separation of powers defense to talking about that. And can I just jump in? It's not just that response, but Roberts earlier this week, right, gave some remarks at the American Law Institute. And in the course of doing that, basically, you know, reiterated this. He said, look, I want to assure everybody that I am committed to making certain that we as a court adhere to the highest standards of conduct. We are continuing to look at things we can do to give practical effect to that commitment. We can do that in ways that are consistent with our status as an independent branch and the Constitution's separation of powers. And it's implicit, but I think it's clear in those statements that any ethics regulation and reform, in the court's view, must come from within. And that is not obviously a recipe for any kind of meaningful ethics progress on the Supreme Court if all they are willing to tolerate is what they will voluntarily impose upon themselves. Although let me read a few different tea leaves into that, if I may. And that is that I think the court's reputation is not only in the pits with the public, but I think the court's reputation is in the pits with the other federal judges. I think that the signal that came out of the Judicial Conference about the Scalia 
free holiday trick by wangling a personal invitation, I mean, that door got slammed very hard in the Supreme Court's face by the Judicial Conference. They now have Thomas back for a second round of review after they papered over the first round. I don't think they find that very amusing. And frankly, they all know perfectly well that the Supreme Court saying nothing to see here, folks, all of our behavior is fine, is flagrantly false. They know they could never get away with that on their courts. And when the court pretends that it's okay, that it's sort of standard judicial practice, it casts a shadow on all of them that they might be indulging in similar kinds of behavior. And I think there's a lot of resentment about that brewing because they know damned well they don't do that. They couldn't do that. They'd get caught if they tried. And the Supreme Court pretending that none of this is real is uh, intensely irritating to them, as Judge Wolf said, deeply disturbing, I think were his words, to the other judges. And I think that's where the comment from the Roberts might be coming from. He might be hearing from the judicial conference judges, hey, pal, you've had your fun. Knock it off. You're making us all look bad. It is noteworthy that he thought the moment finally had come to say something. But I really agree that it was a short opinion that the footnote uh, was most prominent, the reference at the end to separation of powers and the express suggestion that we're going to decide at the end. We'll move into ethics in a moment. I want to stick with organic causes a little bit uh, longer, but we can see a real sort of crisis point down the line where Senator Whitehouse and colleagues actually passed some kind of robust ethical guidance or law and the court just strike it down. I also think it's worth stressing, Chief Justice Roberts has perhaps less power to act unilaterally in yes. this space than I think a lot of folks assume. And so I also think that it's entirely possible that what he would do if it were up to him and what he is able to do under the constraints of having to get unanimity in order to actually accomplish anything are two radically different things. That's not to excuse his behavior. It's not to excuse anything he said. There are folks out there who I think are under the misimpression that the chief could just bind the other eight justices to enforceable ethics standards by himself. And, you know, for better or for worse, I would say for worse, that's not how things currently stand. Of course, there are other things he can do. I mean, he has a bully pulpit that he has chosen not to use. And this goes back to the larger problem, which is that I think the chief is actually now stuck between agreeing that a lot of these recent events paint the court in a terrible light, but also not wanting to cede even one inch of real estate back to Congress. And so trying to figure out how to split that difference in a way that he can actually keep everyone from Justice Kagan to Justice Alito on board with him. There are two things that he can do. One is he can use the power that he demonstrated unilaterally to investigate matters. Remember, he launched the investigation into the Alito-Dobbs decision leak. So he could perfectly easily also do an investigation into, for instance, what Justice Thomas knew and when he knew it about his wife's insurrection activities as it relates to his decision not to recuse from the January 6th case. Now, he's not going to do that for a whole variety of reasons, but he could. The power is right there before him. And then he also has the power as chair of the Judicial Conference to influence its behavior. And I suspect that his influence has been so far to protect the court, to bury questions, to avoid controversies. But now it may be forceful enough that 
he has a moment kind of in Pontius Pilate mode to wash his hands and say to the rest of the judges on the judicial conference, which is a very senior and august group of judges, I will keep my hands clear of this. You are welcome to come up with what you can come up with. Let's try to solve this problem. I do want to underscore, and and Kate, you may agree, having been there, that it sounds like Chief Justice, well, he can say what he wants, but I remember Rehnquist used to say, well, he could just do a sort of little disapproving nod. I think the court is more accurately analogized to nine little beehive law firms than it is to uh, kind of starting nine with him as the manager. But it's also true, of course, that the things you're talking about, Senator, would undermine his agenda of keeping the court together in other ways. So I think he really does, you know, feel this strongly, but is constrained in all kinds of cultural as well as as legal ways. I wanted to maybe put you on on the spot a little, Kate, because I perceived a slight difference of nuance between the senator and Steve's points, and, and they dovetail with similar nuances in the overall commentary these days. So Steve, I think, kind of points the finger at Congress for giving the court all this power, but no longer exercising any modicum of control. I think the senator and others, there was a, we know Kim well in the Atlantic just said the modern Supreme Court has made itself the most powerful branch of government, superior to Congress, yes, but also the president, the states, precedent, procedure, and norms in effect superior to the people. So to the extent they are It occurred to me this morning, could I call them possibly the most self-aggrandizing court in history? In any event, they're up there. Does the fault lie in the political branches for not stepping up or the Supreme Court itself for, you know, flexing its own muscles and cowing the other branches? Yeah. And maybe not surprisingly, I do think it's a combination. I would say primary responsibility does lie with the court and its Mm -hmm. assertion of this completely unbridled authority. And I think secondarily, a lot of responsibility does lie with the other branches, with, I think, Congress for not asserting its power to control the Supreme Court in the ways that Steve alluded to a few minutes ago. And also, I mean, Steve mentioned the chief justice and the bully pulpit. A point that I've returned to again and again is that the president, I think, has been pretty derelict in using his bully pulpit to focus the public's attention on the Supreme Court in a way that I think would be quite effective and powerful, would both, I think, maybe embolden Congress to actually take some steps, would, I think, further galvanize public opinion. And I think we see in ways large and small that the court is paying attention and the court does care about public opinion. And so it seems to me that this is an enormous missed opportunity if Biden, as he's sort of hitting the re-election campaign trail, does not spend a lot of time talking about the Supreme Court, a topic on which he's been conspicuously silent. So, again, I think there is plenty of blame to go around. I think primarily it does lie in the first instance with the Supreme Court, but at this point it is pretty broadly shared. And if I can just add my own gloss, this is the most obvious of all and implicit in what you were saying, but my main brief with the court is that especially the three Trump justices were, you know, it it goes back to a whole kind of culture that comes into existence in the 80s. And the justices were almost bred in this hothouse of really strong cultural allegiance to a particular right-wing agenda, to which I think they remain loyal even after their appointment. In other words, 
Trump and Leonard Leo and others very craftily and methodically gave us intelligent, thoughtful people who may belong on the bench but are so much in a very narrow stratum of where overall judicial opinion, public opinion would be. And you might call that bad luck. You might point to a broader sort of social history of it. But that's what really I think we've been kind of stuck with. Yeah, I think, Harry, you've hit the key point because this is not some abstract separation of powers balancing act between the legislative, executive and judicial branches. This is a judicial branch, a Supreme Court that is aggrandizing power to itself with a purpose And that purpose is to make manifest in the law the desires of a small group of creepy right-wing billionaires who saw to it that they were appointed, who were funding the ads for them, who were in the back room at the Federalist Society when the whatever the list, however the list was cooked up, it was cooked up, and who are lectured to constantly by dark money-funded right-wing front groups that come in and file amicus briefs pretending to be separate organizations when it's clearly an orchestrated phenomenon. And lionized and championed in their own sort of social settings without getting, you know, too dark about it. There's a home team here, I think. And in contrast to what Kate talked about with the SEC and senators, It just ain't the American people as a whole, I think. That's a really rough thing to say, but it just seems true to me. Everybody, welcome back. It's time for the good news. Good news, good news. And if you have any good news, confessions, corrections, if there's anything you want to share with us, maybe a shout out to a loved one or a local business in your area or perhaps uh, an adoptable pet in your area. If you want to play What the Mutt or show me your kitties sitting in masking tape squares, whoopee stories, uh, frog orgies, baby pictures, whatever you want to send us, you can send it to us at dailybeanspod.com and click on contact. All right. First up from Sherry, pronouns she and her. Shout out to Jordan Best and Lori Shulman, the co-founders of the Santa Cruz Opera Project, a new opera company in Santa Cruz, California. In June, the second production will be an almost all-female production of La Boheme. The company was founded to make opera more accessible to everyone and also to feature more women in opera productions, where there are many, many more roles for men. This La Boheme will have a center love story between two women, uh, as Rodolfo Rudy is portrayed by a female singer. Our three-show run at the Woodhouse Brewery is sold out. I'm very proud to be a part of this production and so proud of these two creators for their vision and hard work. Check out santacruzoperaproject.org. For pet tax, this is Phineas, our boop boop boopy, or boopy as he's known around our house. (laughs) Oh my gosh, he's so cute. I love his jacket. The smile. That's like a little Humphrey Bogart. Okay, so if a dog ever looked like Humphrey Bogart. This is the dog. I hope you guys can see this. All right, next up from Brent, pronouns he and him. Happy Pride Month, team. It's me, Brent from the Woods, back with another update from the Woods. First, I'm starting with the pet tax because my man JP needs to be celebrated right up front. At 17 and a half years old, JP left us recently to await us in Valhalla. 
In this photo, my buddy looks a bit like a vampire, but look into his sweet little eyes and rest assured he will never feed on your blood for sustenance. AG, you may remember him from previous submissions where he was wearing his little cowboy hat. Yes, you're welcome to guess his breed, but I think it's an easy one. Anyway, I miss my buddy. You're all invited to join me in raising a toast to JP as you hear this clink. Second, here's a pic of some toads JP and I discovered on the driveway late one evening. As a purple belt myself, I can confirm the toads are clearly engaged in some Brazilian jiu-jitsu. <laughs> Note how the smaller one has used superior technique to gain position of advantage over the larger opponent. But having taken the opponent's back, the little guy has a good opportunity to go for a rear naked choke or something similar. Isn't nature amazing? Third and finally, I want to invite listeners to check out my books. I'm a small press author, and getting the word out has always been a challenge. I have a few dark fantasy and horror books out there, but I'm most proud of my Chuggy series. Imagine if Tom Waits was an intoxicated demigod on a world of weird monsters. You mean he's not? Uh, He spouts a lot of drunken profanity, and he always fights for those in need. Sometimes Chuggy even busts out a song. If any of that sounds like something you'd like to read about, go to Amazon and search for Brent Kelly, with that's a K-E-L-L-E-Y, and or Chuggy, C-H-U-G-G-I-E. The first book is free for your Kindle, and by the time you get to book three, you'll be like, what? My dream is to be a full-time writer, and I promised JP that's what I would do. With JP, the Jiu-Jitsu Battletoads, and the Illuminati in my corner, I can't fail. Ah, yes, it is definitely Jiu-Jitsu with the Toads. Thank you. Oh, look at the baby. Oh, what a sweetheart. Thank you for sharing. JP, we will miss you and cheers. Next up from Diane, pronouns she and her. Hello, Beans Queens. Did you hear a loud whoop of celebration coming from the Shenandoah Valley the other night? That was me celebrating my kid's high school graduation. The start of high school was disrupted by a pandemic and the end was marred by three surgeries in the first half of the year and a fourth in early May. Good Lord. It was hard And it was never a sure thing, but this kid did it. And this mama is proud and a little exhausted. As pet tax, the dog brought home by my new high school grad in February. First is how it started, and then is how it's going. Dog's only five months old. You've seen him before, but can play what the mutt. And see if you remember. Oh, (laughs) oh, Oh, look, there's an excellent graduation picture. Congratulations. Look at the puppy. Have I played what the mutt with this baby before? I feel like I have. I feel like I have. And I feel like I got the shepherd right and I got the other dog wrong because I thought chow chow, but it was actually an Akita. So I'm going to say Akita shepherd and let's see what we do. Do, 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 do. Akita shepherd. I remembered, but it's only because I've had this question on the test before. But congratulations so much on the graduation. That's a resilient kid. Amazing. Next up from Denise, pronouns she and her. Rumors out there that there may be some documents buried in Trump's ex-wife's casket. Considering she was cremated, seems plausible. Anyone looking into that? I don't know. I don't know. But some people that I look up to have also posited the same thing. I just don't know. I, I, let me say that I wouldn't put it past him. But I don't know if anybody's looking into it. How about that? Next up from Christy, she, her. Love your work. I tried tape on the floor with Ozzy. He was just not interested. Best I could get was this picture of my out-of-the-box thinker. Oh, my God. He's so cute. Thank you, Ozzy. By the way, beautiful floor. What is that? It's like almost like Koa, but not. Is that like 
burled walnut, knotty pine, or oh, that's gorgeous floor. Knotty pine, maybe. Love it. Oh, thank you, everybody. I needed this on this Friday. It's going to carry me through the weekend. Uh, if you're a cleanup on aisle 45 patron, there will be a bonus episode. If you're a beans patron, there will be a bonus episode um, for the weekly wrap up. Check out my TikTok if you're not following me there. Uh, Dana, I miss you. I know she'll be back on Tuesday. Big episode of the Jack podcast. Huge episode of the Jack podcast coming out on Sunday. Thank you all for listening. And uh, I will be back in your ears, you know, outside of all those things, all the weekend content. I will be back on Monday. Until then, please take care of yourselves. Take care of each other. Take care of the planet. Take care of your mental health. Vote blue over Q and bring someone with you. I've been AG and them's the beans. The Daily Beans is written and executive produced by Allison Gill with additional research and reporting by Dana Goldberg. Sound design and editing is by Desiree McFarlane with art and web design by Joel Reeder with Moxie Design Studios. Music for The Daily Beans is written and performed by They Might Be Giants and the show is a proud member of the MSW Media Network, a collection of creator-owned podcasts dedicated to news, politics, and justice. For more information, please visit mswmedia.com. MSW Media. Hi, this is John Cryer, and I am hosting a new seven-part true crime podcast called Lawyers, Guns, and Money that'll challenge everything you think you know about U.S. covert operations and presidential misconduct. From Jack Bryan, the director of American PSYOP, comes the incredible true story of John Mattis, a newly sworn-in Miami public defender in the 1980s who has found himself completely in over his head. I step off the plane, and there is a van with a couple guys with Uzis. And one of them in broken English said, welcome to Bogota, John. Mattis's first felony defendant has been arrested for having a machine gun and tells Mattis a dangerous secret. He was shipping arms into Central America on behalf of the CIA. As a first-time lawyer, I want to act like I know what I'm doing. But with the help of a Colombian drug smuggler, how much money the CIA raised by hitting up drug dealers? A lot of money, millions of dollars. An Alabama mercenary. They were prepared to die to the last man. I saw this in them. I saw the fire in their eyes. And they made me their war chief. And a newly elected senator, John Kerry. We are looking at allegations of drug running, gun smuggling, conspiracy to commit murder and murder itself. He'll fight to free his client. The judge said, Show me, in a courtroom, how we were at war. Expose an illegal war being run by the White House. I mean, I wanted him involved, but I didn't want to be on record as doing it. And somehow stay alive in the process. I just escaped a kidnapping by the CIA in Costa Rica. This is Lawyers, Guns, and Money. So you have a man in Armani suit standing in the bow of a boat with a rocket launcher and says, if I lose sight of you, I will launch. You will be vaporized. Available everywhere starting October 29th or get it ad free and early starting October 22nd at lawyersgunsandmoney.supercast.com. There you'll find bonus episodes along with exclusive content. Subscribe now.